Thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week, where we'll be talking all about the new UAW contract. Is it good for the union? Is it good for the automotive industry? we got to get to the bottom of this. And helping me to figure all that out are three experts joining me on today's program, including Sean McElinden from the Center for Automotive Research, Bob Sheravelli from Strategic Labor and Human Resources, and my colleague, Joe Sesney with the Oakland Press. Great having you all here today. Thanks, so, Sean, I'm going to throw it out to you, and all of you join in. Is this a good contract? Is it different? Are we really on the, the cusp of a new era in labor management relations in the American auto industry? Well, in economic terms, it was not what you'd call a groundbreaking agreement. What it was was a solidifying, cementing agreement that basically put into a more permanent place the, uh, you know, the new framework we bargained for in 2007 and in 2009 in the modifications, and that's a really good thing. Isn't the big change, you guys, that the union has agreed more to get generous profit sharing rather than just demand more and more wages and other things all along? Yeah, I think that was a very good agreement from both sides. I think in, in terms of the uh, management, they've got, they got concessions, actually, from the union in terms of key issues like pensions and on the other side, the union got a commitment from some jobs, and I think, like Sean says, it, it solidified the path that they were on. It didn't. It doesn't cost them anymore, I don't think, uh, going forward. And the union has also had to readjust some of its uh, uh, thinking about what, it, what what's affordable here in Detroit going forward. And in large part, there really weren't a lot of surprises. This is one of the time the circus comes to town and the elephant doesn't do gymnastics, <laughs> right? And we needed a calm almost boring negotiations for this industry because it's still going through a lot of upheaval. Um, I don't think there was anything in it that surprised anybody. I know people talk about it being a pattern. I saw less of a pattern this time than ever before. Now, even though it said there's going to be certain approaches and wages and benefits or no wages and some benefits, it really took into account the strength of each one of the automakers. But isn't the real underlying story here that General Motors and Chrysler could not go on strike? They couldn't use that big hammer in their negotiations. And that was, of course, because the Obama administration put that stipulation in that before GM and Chrysler got bailed out, the union, union would have to agree to a, a no-strike clause. They did have a no-strike clause because of the arbitration provision. But if you look in that 500-plus pages of labor negotiations, the uh, the five-volume labor agreement, you will see plenty of opportunities for a union to cause problem. And to the union's credit, they went in there trying to craft a deal that was good for the industry, maintain things for their members, and didn't do any production interruption or any kind of adverse work action. And I think Bob King, the uh, president of the UAW, actually, I think he wanted to, like Bob says, cut the drama. He didn't want any of the drama that he had in the years that kind of been a hallmark of the talks in the past, because I think one of the things he wanted to do was kind of change, help change Detroit's image a little bit, and the the drama around the talks was one of the really had become one of the real negative things about the industry I, at, at but large. But don't you think there was drama anyway? I mean, this thing was supposed to wrap up in early September. It went easily a month beyond that deadline. There was all kinds of stories in the news of locals that did reject the contract, either at Ford or, or Chrysler, notably. So it seems to me, yeah, there wasn't the kind of drama that we've seen in past negotiations. But I don't know is that it was all hunky-dory this time well, around this either. Well, this time around, the UAW leadership probably spent more time um, negotiating with their own rank and file than with management. And, and they were negotiating some actually big changes that happened two or three years ago 
that were accepted back then because of the crisis, because of the bankruptcies. But now the companies are making money. You know, why shouldn't the jobs bank come back? Or where's my cola? Or why is this guy working next to me making less than half of what I do? And, you know, those things had to be explained more to the rank and file. A lot of them had difficulty swallowing it, clearly. Um, and that's why it took longer. It took more political skill on the part of leadership, on the part of the political leadership on the floor of the plants uh, to get this thing done. And, uh, of course, the companies went on to more concessions. Of course, a lot of things that were just discussed, you know, like near strikes could have happened, you know, in certain other ways. But I think we had leadership that was basically on the same page. And the drama came because we had some arguing to do with the rank and file. And I, I think it, it's, people don't really appreciate how much that contract has been restructured. I mean, basically, senior workers haven't, gone, have, have now, haven't had a raise in their base wage since 2007. The cost of living has disappeared. Uh, like I said, the pensions have been significantly changed. So all these things are major, major changes from what had been the UAW's philosophy or what, among the UAW's demands in the past. Is it enough, though, in the sense that, of course, the, the Detroit three automakers have got to be competitive with the transplants? Does this, four years from now, leave them competitive? I do think there is one issue that I think um, the transplants are making more and more use of temporary workers, and I think this helps them drive down their labor costs. But I think at, at the same time, they're also running, sort of risking sort of a backlash, because I think that the, the auto industry has, always has been a source of full-time jobs, and I think the more you use temporary workers, I think um, you're also setting yourself up for it. By the end of this agreement, I think 2015, Chrysler and Ford and General Motors, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they are going to um, adjust the cap on the second tier. Right. And that will change what the mix of the wage uh, bill is going to be. The second tier meaning that anybody the entry level in. wage, how many people they can have at the entry level wage. So 2015, there's going to be a structural change because of the collective bargaining agreement. Yeah, we see them actually, uh, the gap with the transplants will not widen for the next four years, um, especially the transplants average about 1.5% labor costs themselves. Some of them have big grow-ins like Kia and Volkswagen. Uh, the new Mississippi Toyota plant, uh, you know, to go through. So they'll be, they'll be jumping their labor costs a bit. Um, you know, and we see our guys not doing under 1%. We include profit sharing in our formulation at, at Center for Automotive Research. We see about 1.4 to 1.5. Including you know, profit sharing. Including very likely profit sharing, which we think they're leaving out a bit of their formulas. But, you know, that's really good uh, compared to any previous contract where profits were you know, in it, you know, it was there and existing, you know. And didn't they also um, put the formula so that it was more than just U.S.-based profits? Yes, it's North American profits, and in Chrysler, it's 85% of world. Of global yeah. profits, but I right. Think also, I think that there will be a lot of pressure on the transplants to try and reduce their labor costs going forward because of this agreement. Mm -hmm. And so they will be using, doing things like modifying their, their health care benefits, and also, uh, which I expect to see in the next year, and also using, like I said, more temporary work. Well, the big question now is who's setting the pattern for who? I mean, are the <laughs> transplants setting question. the pattern for us, or are we setting the pattern for them? And, um, you, know, the, you know, the OW would like to see actually um, all of us at the same level, which give them a chance to, better chance at organizing mm -hmm. uh, in the future, you know, roughly around $55, $58 all in, you know, with the wage and plus benefits could be the situation for just about everyone in the U.S. in four years. I think this negotiations has shown the industry, both the OEM industry and the supplier industry, what 
how far they can push the envelope with the UAW. And the bellwether for me and what I consider for the suppliers is now they can really push on variable comp. With the uh, hourly wage, the mixed hourly wage for the OEMs going down, there is a trickle down where the suppliers really have to have smaller and smaller compensation packages. And how are they going to make up for that without adjusting their fixed uh, costs? Is they're going to use some level of variable comp. Now, what, what's variable comp? Explain that. Instead of uh, having a fixed amount per hour that they pay for every man hour worked, they're going to maybe uh, uh, trigger, it'll tri be triggered off of a profit or it'll be triggered off of some other kind of metric. And as those metrics go up, they earn more. As they go down, the uh, fixed cost doesn't vary. Yeah, quality or production bonuses are being one, one And element. you know, it's interesting, historically, uh, Walter Ruther in the late 40s and early 50s was pushing the UAW to look at profit sharing. And there was yep. such a horrible backlash. From management. Well, that also, it's been a long time um, sort of uh, conventional wisdom that if you put anything variable into the workforce, it would be something that tears apart solidarity. Hmm. And when Walter Ruther brought this up a long time ago, it didn't go anywhere. I.e., they didn't want the workers uh, working in the interest of the corporation. Is right. that what you're saying, essentially? Sure. And with variable comp, there are going to be winners and losers among the rank and file. You know, we had at one time incentive comp, where you made so many pieces or you did so many things under the industrial engineering standards and you made more or less. You might look at a workforce and there's a lot of variability between what two people on in similar jobs would make. Well, that went against a lot of the uh, union philosophy. We're not using piece rates here, though. The second tier is going to get the same lump sums, the same profit sharing as the first tier. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are moving from fixed labor costs to flexible compensation, that will go to the supplier sector. Even at Toyota, who pays about 8% to in two different kinds of bonuses to their people in Georgetown, will probably raise, I think, their percentage in response to this agreement. You know, in Japan, it's 40% mm. uh, depend on bonus payments. So we might be turning Japanese, maybe even Japanese <laughs> faster than the Japanese here. <laughs> if that doesn't confuse things, I'll try later. How, how uh, successful do you think the car companies will be in making this profit sharing stick? I mean, four years from now, the contract expires. GM and Chrysler can strike or the workers there can strike if they want to. Are they going to say, no, nah, we don't want this profit sharing stuff. We want to go back to higher wages. What, 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 how do you guys read this? I think if, if, there's a, if you have some favorable economic tailwinds in the next three or four years, over the next three or four years, um, I think it'll actually work to their to the union's benefits, where they won't have a big fight to convince people that this is a good thing because because they'll be sharing so money because so, the, so the, much in the profit. These these uh, these new formulas will throw off so much money that it, it'll be a success. I think two things are going to factor into it. First and foremost, in any negotiations, is bargaining strength. Mm -hmm. The last couple uh, negotiations, the auto companies have had uh, significantly more bargaining strength than the UAW. The other thing is, for these auto companies, it's always going to be less expensive to keep people working and producing a vehicle and give them the profit sharing. If those factories are down for one hour, the cost to the companies is enormous. If you go back to 1998, when they had many strikes at General Motors, I think they pegged the, those little strikes at about a billion dollars in lost profits. I, I think it was higher than that. I think it was two billion net and uh, three billion in operating profits yeah, even, that GM lost. Even the American Axle strike in two, 2008 uh, was over a billion dollars. So I if, mean. The, if the membership wants to have higher wages, 
they're going to have to, next negotiations, have significantly more bargaining strength. This may put a cap on employment, though, because the more people you employ, the more of this profit sharing under this formula will be paid out, which is sort of different than the last one. And, uh, you know, they average at Chrysler and, uh, and Ford about 1800 bucks a year, going back 15 years under the old formula. And GM workers didn't believe in it. They barely got $5,200. They averaged like $300. So you got some convincing to do there. But, uh, you know, if you really double the size of the labor force, you are going to double your cash flow out at profit sharing. And with these small numbers now, it's an easy thing to agree to for the companies. We'll see in the future, though. Another thing that we saw interesting in these last negotiations, at least when it came to the Ford negotiations, is the Ford department at the UAW put up a Facebook page hmm. where anybody could come in and comment and they would post official results of the voting. And uh, then they started that with the Chrysler contract and I guess it got out of hand or something, but they pulled that Facebook page. What do you guys read into what they were doing with social media? I think that was an interesting, I think that was a real genuine step forward for the UAW. That I liked it. I loved it. I, I went to that page and read all the comments. Right. I mean, and you got a lot of interesting comments. You got a little bit of a debate going on, on all those pages. And I think it was, a, it, it was a good step forward. I mean, the union has always been kind of, the executive board has always been accused of being too secretive and uh, too manipulative. In, and I think that kind of broke, helped break that down. Of course, it got a little bit too feisty, I think, at Chrysler. And I think they... They began to kind of like uh, you pull back some of the some of the openness, but uh, by and large, I thought it was a good a good move on the union's part, and I think uh, uh, the membership itself responded positively to it. Social media is going to inject chaos into an industry that's highly controlled with a union that's highly controlled. We only have to look highly controlling. <laughs> okay, uh, and when you have that level of communication unfettered. People are free to say whatever they want. People vote for it anonymously, either by um, tagging it as something they like or adding more comments. This is really a ground shift that I think over the next three or four years in labor relations, we're going to be seeing playing a bigger role. I heard Bob King talk about, and I haven't heard this in a long time, where you have minority interests that aren't absolutely taken care of in negotiations, how do you vindicate that or how do you protect them? Well. Through the UAW, uh, they've done it through their democracy, through their public review board. Now there's a whole thing of social media of people finding critical mass, uh, the skilled trades or people that might be at a lower level or um, they might be in a uh, protected class of um, workers finding common ground through social media. But even before the negotiations started, I mean, if you talk to the negotiators for for the big three, they would monitor blogs. They were already monitoring blogs that were kept by auto workers by themselves because they wanted to see what the sentiment was. So, I mean, this was already creeping into the, into the dialogue. It's a good thing. There's no question. I mean, workers live 100 miles from their local. We wouldn't be able to get a quorum of anything. People, some people have worked there for years and have, haven't been to their local um, in 10, 15 years. And here's a way to communicate directly between the union uh, and its membership. Uh, touch base with what they really value, what they're getting for their dues. I can't help but think in the long run it's going to help the movement. Hey, it's going to have some rocky patches, no doubt about it. Everyone's you know, learning. This is all brand new. Absolutely. So. But these union chat rooms and these uh, union Facebook pages um, sound like a breakthrough. Uh, the old the old model of let's all show up at the lo you know local Saturday night or Sunday, you know, forget it. That's gone. We live too far away. We're too diversified. We're too disconnected. This This could change things. 
we'll have to track keep uh, track of that. Uh, another thing I'd like to get your uh, your feelings on is where does this leave the UAW from a long-term viability standpoint? Can it use this latest contract that it got from GM, Ford, and Chrysler to go after the transplants, to go after suppliers in the industry? Because I've got to believe that at its current employment level, which is what, over a little over 100,000 UAW workers in the industry, which right. is scandalous. I remember when Chrysler alone had more than that. Mm -hmm. Now all three combined barely even hit that number. How does this contract leave the UAW going down the road here? Well, it should help them rebuild a little bit. I mean, it, it, they had 100,000 members in this current set of negotiations. Perhaps they'll go to 115, 120,000, but, but mm. you're right, it doesn't, doesn't solve the problem for them. They still have that, the issue of, uh, of the transplants, and I'm not sure that this contract gets them to where they want to go in, in, down south. Only thing the transplants do is offer a little more than what Ford General Motors and Chrysler got, and then they can say that the UAW wasn't able to do for the you know, they're going to be able to give a little more and say, look, you didn't need the UAW to do that. Well, you know, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, we've got about 108,000 working there. We expect that to rise by six, 7,000 once you net out all the job openings for plant shutdowns and attrition and all that. But still, uh, the pattern's kind of positive. And we, in the supplier sector alone, the next three years, we have to bring back to make more cars, more trucks. In this, when this pent-up demand releases, maybe 150, 175,000 people. Well, say that again. That's We're going to have to, the, the U.S. We, auto industry is going to have to hire up to 175,000 right. people? Right, and, uh, and um, all but uh, 20,000 will be at the suppliers. I think that's one reason why you're, you're hearing these, these labor shortage uh, complaints. Uh, and right. that's just for the skilled labor now, but uh, we're going to have to fill the plants as well at a favorable exchange rate. In a, you know, obviously an Sean, this doesn't sale. sound possible. 175,000 people mm -hmm. working in the industry. You're not talking about the ripple effect elsewhere. No, we're not. Talk direct jobs. Direct jobs. That's a staggering number. Well, we're what, at 580. We're going to about 760 by 2014. But what percentage of those will be unionized? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where, the, obviously, they suffered even a greater percentage decline was in that unionization rate for suppliers. And, of course, you know, in the end, the, the most important tactic the one that they're most worried about at the international firms is what if all of their suppliers were organized or enough suppliers were organized that they would have to worry about continuous production at their plants. That's how Ford was organized so many years ago. And this is their greatest worry down south. Do you see the union organizing suppliers, though? Do you think they'll have that success? Absolutely. I mean, there, there's a basic triage that they'll be going through. If it's a UAW supplier that's supplying one of the OEMs, and they are uh, almost 100% UAW, their ex extra couple non-union places are going to be hit. Then they're going to be uh, UAW with some other unions, and then when it's just going to trickle down. Because, you see, the, there's unlimited things for these organizers to do with a limited organizing staff. So they're just going to have to be very focused. They're going to be very, very busy at the UAW if they're doing things right. And then the suppliers are also paying basically below even the minimum wage, you know, the, the, the average manufacturing wage in the United States. So there is some, they, there is potentially some fertile ground there. I mean, um, these people are making, you know, basically minimum wage in some of these plants. So this is, uh, there is an opportunity. There's there some for, important NLRB rules going to change um, in about a month. Um, you've got Bob King, who knows more about organizing the supplier sector than any president 
they've had since the 1930s. Elizabeth Bunn is a former UAW executive, is now the head of AFL-CIO organizing. Uh, we've got one more year of President Obama. <laughs> I think you're going to see some action on this front. I've got to believe with the new wage system at the big three right now, they've got to consider insourcing more. I mean, why pay all these suppliers to build all these parts and components for you and let them stack up their profit margins? I mean, on certain componentry, the stack up of profit margins gets to be significant. I would expect things like instrument panel assembly, seat assembly, and things like that, which doesn't take a whole big capital investment to do, to start coming in-house. And, and where does that leave suppliers if the big three really, truly start insourcing? The closer it gets to the core product of the OEMs, the more sense it makes for them to insource, because not only can they um, bring it in at a lower tier level, lower wage level, they have control over the quality. The quality is quite variable across suppliers in a lot of this stuff. Well, one of the interesting things to watch is GM, where they've rolled out this new line of electric motors. Um, if Now, I think there's probably a lot of suppliers who are bidding for that work to do GM's, do the new designs for GM. But I think if, if GM decides to bring that in-house, I think that'll be a significant step. And I think probably there's some pressure from the union to, to bring that work in-house. Yeah, beyond Joe's uh, you know, electrification technologies, uh, we don't really see much room for insourcing because uh, the value add from engineering and design has long ago passed to the suppliers. Even at seats, where we've got to make them thinner and hollower and lighter, our guy, we don't have the engineering in-house or the manufacturing mm. techniques to do that work anymore. So. Largely, it will be sequencing, you know, parts kitting, other things like that. You might see come in occasionally when you have labor flexibility and you need to put a quick line together. Uh, but, but other than limited. that, you don't see much insourcing no, coming. Very no, interesting. I, I would have thought that we'd see a lot more of that. Well, couldn't make them or design them if we wanted to. For that, relying on these guys. But there's been some components like they kept, like axles, which have been kind of one of those issues. Yeah, uh -huh. components where they go up and back and that, but I think that'll probably stay in-house now for a lot of that, at Ford and Chrysler at least. Well, it costs a billion dollars to put up an actual capacity. Uh, where are you going to find the money for these gigantic things? And That's right, and that's why you know, yeah. I was talking about labor-intensive yeah. kind yeah, labor of assembly where you don't have to invest in big equipment to bring it in-house. Mm -hmm. And So, for example, Honda does all its sure. instrument panel assembly mm -hmm. in-house. The big right. three okay. buy it pre-assembled. Why not bring that inside? Kind of blow molds the actual panel right in the center of uh, Marysville. Um, they weld together their exhaust uh, system in the plant. Um, you know, they just, you know, obviously that's a reward for getting more productivity out of their lines. You bring more stuff in. Mm -hmm. It's an old Japanese secret. I just don't see that happening in the Detroit model. No. You know, there's something I want to bring up that you see a real difference between OEM labor relations and supplier labor relations, and that is the OEMs can staff their labor relations uh, um, departments with a lot of experts. When you go into the suppliers, you're seeing a real degradation of the labor relations expertise. Even with the UAW and some of the unions where they're bringing in newer uh, negotiators, lose, they've lost a lot of their labor relations expertise. So as, you, as I look at the supply industry and the ability to have production stops because of uh, workforce problems, I see there's a real opportunity for costly mistakes because the negotiators on either side aren't going to be as well prepared. They're not going to use all the most sophisticated parts of technology or things that they've learned over 30 years of negotiating these things. They're putting people in that might negotiate two or three times in a lifetime. 
And so what happens when those negotiations break down and a component of one of the cars goes on strike? I mm -hmm. think the labor relations could uh, actually be a real impediment for the OEMs getting their product out the door. Well, wouldn't that be something that would lead suppliers to say, you know, I don't want the union. I don't want to have to go out and hire a whole new staff just to deal with the union. But it's the not their hand, decision. On the other hand, if the contract depends on if their contract with Chrysler or Ford or GM depends on it. Do you think that we'll see that where the, the big three will mandate two suppliers thou shalt use UAW labor? Or, you well, know, we're going to dual sourcing again anyway. That's the rumor, um, at least partially. And, you know, Bob has for the suppliers provide the few he's got left provided uh, quite generously the no strike pledge you know that you can't hurt the customer you know it's between you and uh, I mean not our customer we both value them and even when the uh, you know when they still had Delphi uh, you know plants running in Flint supplying Toyota those lines always kept running during the Delphi strikes and so you'd, you'd watch the, the UAW workers loyally go back in to build Toyota parts while shutting down General Motors in North America and it that's how much they valued that business We'll see that again. And in this last negotiations, didn't they enhance the UAW's role in vendor verification, uh, verification right. or validation? We always try. Well, that's one, uh, that's one opportunity for the UAW and the OEM to walk into a supplier's uh, world and favor a union supplier or make inroads with a non-union supplier. And some suppliers have already swung that way. Dana, I think, is one. And There's oh, some legality like that, issues yeah. on that, whether you can favor right. a union supplier or a non-union right. supplier. Yeah, it becomes, is it a secondary boycott? Or yeah. Unfortunately, right. we're going to have to wrap this up, and we're going to have to keep a close eye on how this labor contract evolves or how it actually gets enacted in the next four years. But Sean McElindon, Bob Shiravelli, Joe Sesney, thanks for coming in, and I thank all of you for having tuned in.